Hey everyone, and welcome to Seriously Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. Seriously Risky Business, of course, is the podcast we do here at Risky.biz where we talk through Tom Uren's weekly Seriously Risky Business newsletter. G'day, Tom. Good to talk to you. G'day, Patrick. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this week's work on this, uh, Netrix. Uh, so they do like various PAM sort of stuff, uh, you know, privilege access management and whatnot and uh, auditing stuff. And they are spelled N-E-T-W-R-I-X. And uh, yeah, that is how you can go forth and find Netrix. So Tom, you've done a couple of deep dives uh, this week. You've, you've written a few items into your newsletter, as is the way. Uh, let's start with your analysis of the situation in Europe when it comes to spyware. There's been a huge focus in the last, you know, I don't know, eight years or something on uh, the Israeli company NSO Group. But Europe has its own homegrown spyware that's being misused. And, you know, it just looks like European politicians you know, their, their, their response, I'm reminded of a Paul Keating insult where he said debating John Hewson was like being flogged with warm lettuce. And, you know, that's kind of the response that we're seeing out of the Europeans at the moment to this. Um, and you've written, a, a, you know, essentially a column here saying that they need to grow a spine. Can you walk us through it? Yeah. So this week there was a report or a series of reports released in collaboration between Amnesty International and a whole heap of media organisations that collaborate on investigations. And it basically looked at what's called the Intellexa Alliance, which is this grouping of spyware and intelligence companies. And the they, they appear to be linked closely. It's not exactly clear what the ownership is because, of course, they hide that kind of thing. Um, so Amnesty's security lab provided the kind of technical nous, and they looked at a, a couple of different things. They give an overview of the Predator system. So Predator was or is a mobile malware uh, system. And they look at a particular case study where the targeting was done over Twitter. And the way it would work is that they would respond to tweets. Um, and, you know, my first thought, uh, respond to tweets with a malicious link that would yeah. result in predator infection. Now, my first thought is that targeting over Twitter is just like a really bad way to do things. But um, from a amnesty and from our point of view, it's great because it allows us to see who they were targeting, what they were interested in, and... That's basically what Amnesty's done, is that they've looked at this particular Twitter account, seen who they've replied to, and um, they can follow the links and see if there was malicious stuff there, at least sometimes. Um, yeah, and I mean, from, from the targeting, you can usually divine who the threat actor is as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's aligned with Vietnamese government interests is perhaps... The, I always love that language around, you know, we're attributing, but we don't want to attribute. You know? That's right. So we'll just say it's aligned with their interests. It could just be a Vietnam mega fan. <laughs> That's right. So, the, you know, they've, they've found it targeted journalists, academic researchers, and here's the really interesting part, I think, from the point of view of EU's response to spyware, senior political officials in the EU and the US and elsewhere... Um, particularly so it's pretty around, funny when you've got Viet Vietnamese threat actors using European spyware to target European politicians. Like, that uh, is a yeah, wild I know. time. This, Come on. This is like... Uh, and I think that's part of the problem with targeting on 
Twitter <laughs> is that it's public, so you can figure well, that out. I, I, I think the bigger problem, though, is, and that's what you've written about, is is that the EU has been a little bit soft lettuce on uh, on uh, regulating this stuff, right? Like, this shouldn't be a thing that happens. I think this is the sort of thing that will get people really pissed off, um, at yeah. least some people. And I think that's the kind of call to action, which is the most significant part of this report. Um, it also but there found- seems, But there seems to be a lack of political will in Europe to do much about this. And we learned this thanks to the PEGA Commission that looked into the use of NSO's, you know, Pegasus malware in Europe. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they were very strong on this. So the EU, I guess the beauty of the EU is that you can find people who care strongly about these issues and will call out the rest of the EU, I guess. So they've, I've actually quoted a part of their statement to the European Parliament or their report to the European Parliament and they've said neither the member states nor the council nor the commission seem to be at all interested in maximising their efforts to fully investigate spyware abuse, um, thus knowingly protecting union governments which violate human rights. So I think that's a very strong statement in that kind of report. And I think the way that those governments have been thinking about it probably in the past is, well, you know... If- it's okay if we do it. It's okay if we do it, and we don't care if they do it. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know, there's yeah, this... but when it's when it's the Vietnamese, it's different, though, isn't it? Exactly. Yes, I yeah. think this is the thing. It, it to me, it's outrageous that you've got. Who your knew own that companies. this leopard would eat my face? Is the <laughs> it's the vibe here, right? <laughs> and I, I think it's just the you know you're selling stuff that's used to harm us. That's that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that it was fine when we were using it to harm other people, but um, well, we, we, well, you know, <laughs> we're the good guys. <laughs> yeah, so that's okay. We've got our reasons that we can. So, justify. what is your position here that this will this should be enough to to change the politics around this in Europe? Um, <laughs> <laughs> or do you think we might see another committee or commission or something? I think it's the sort of thing that changes the politics in some places. Yeah, and I think that there's. Uh, the problem with the EU is that there's just so many countries that have different interests. And so I think there seemed to be a nexus around France who had issued some of the export licenses. And there was also an issue around Greece that had also issued some of the export licenses. And the problem with Greece is that it had also elements in, I think it seems like associated with the prime minister, was somehow targeting other politicians. And so Yikes. it's it's uh, a mess. Yeah, <laughs> um, it sounds it. And, and I mean, we should point out too that, you know, these organizations that we're talking about are already on the US entities list, right? Like, yeah. so the, the United States has taken action against them. Europeans haven't. Yeah, and I, I guess I had initially thought that this was because the EU is a fan of process and that it was working through that process. And the more I learn about it, the more I realise it's just intractable differences of opinion. Mm. <laughs> and so given that this is an outside um, country using that spyware to spy on the EU, that may make a difference. Um, yeah. We can only hope. But, I mean, you know, we might see, we might see, like, as you pointed out, the political you know, view of this is quite different between different European countries. So do you think it's possible that we might see, you know, 
countries trying to tackle it on their own in various ways, you know, introducing laws and penalties for... But it's hard, isn't it? I mean, that's the whole point of the EU is to synchronise these sorts of decisions. I think some countries will act on their own because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, yeah. But, you know... But, I mean, there's not much they can do to levy some sort of trade penalty on another EU country, right? Like, they can't put a... You know, France can't sanction Greece. Like, it's just <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think it's like uh, filling in the holes in a colander. This will fill in yeah. some holes. Um, uh, and then part of the other problem is that the alliance has been selling out of the UAE and, you know, which European country can stop that? I don't know. I don't think there's... Well, all of them together can. And I think that's the whole point of the yeah. EU, right? Yeah. yeah. Man, well, that's an interesting one. And, uh, you know, people can go check that out on uh, on Substack. But let's look at the other stuff that you've covered this week. Um, there's this issue of... Uh, what is it? Is it Alibaba? Yeah, Alibaba. They've got like a logistics subsidiary where they do their own, you know, distribution for products sold via their platforms and, you know, e-commerce and, and whatnot. Um, but it is a standalone thing that handles logistics outside of the Alibaba ecosystem. And, you know, Alibaba, of course, being a giant Chinese company. But they've now got this gigantic logistics center in Belgium. And that gets them access to a whole bunch of really juicy data about European logistics. And the Belgians are starting to say, well, this might be a bit of a problem, right? And, you know, you've looked at this and have determined that they probably have a point. I think they absolutely have a point. The article itself is a bit two ways about whether they have access to other information or not. Yeah, so we should, we should mention that this is based on reporting out of the FT, Financial Times. Yeah, yeah. So on one hand, it says that, um, you know, Tsaiyao is the name, I think, uh, is able to access data about merchants, products, transport details and flows, said a person familiar with its IT system. So that sounds actually pretty bad. Um, and the problem is that when it comes to that kind of risk, it, it, like it sounds bad if you give that to that kind of information to an adversary. So I keep thinking of World War II where there was a lot of economic intelligence which was used to decide where to bomb because if you interrupt logistics, you interrupt the war effort. Yeah. Um, however, in the same article, it also says that the logistics centre mainly handles goods sold directly to European consumers through the online shopping site AliExpress. So the question to me is, do they have access to a whole lot of other data from other companies about logistics? And well, that I've, was my understanding reading the piece, is that if you are a logistics centre, you basically get plugged into this information ecosystem, right? And you are going to see information about stuff that's not just yours. That yeah. was my reading of it. But you're yeah. right. I mean, I am sort of, that's my assumption. Yeah, yeah. So it it, it entirely depends on that. And the... I also feel like it's that like that Irish joke of how do you get to you know Cork? Well, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. And <laughs> so the you know once you've got a massive logistics centre plugged into that kind of data, that's just and you start to worry about the intent of the owner of that centre. It's it's just a bad place to be. <laughs> you would have been better off five years ago not having that centre. And so I guess the question is, what do you do from here? It doesn't seem practical to me to stop that centre or force them to sell. Like, that's just not a thing. So you really have to think about what are the 
standards for interchange and trying to limit the amount of data that is shared between different companies. Uh, I think that's the way forward. I think... Um, but I'm the, guessing they share it for a reason, right? And like once you start restricting the flow of this sort of information, you're probably going to make, you know, global logistics less efficient and that's bad. You know, so I think sometimes in cases like this, you just got to take the L and go, okay, China's going to know this stuff, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's not a, like there's definite risks, but there's also definite benefits as well. And yeah. so in the story, they talk about the amount of investment that Sanyao's put into the logistics center, uh, like a significant amount of money, significant a significant number of jobs. It's, uh, you know, it's a sort of hub for activity. So it it is difficult for governments to weigh those decisions because you've got the short-term benefit of those economic benefits and you've got a long-term, a vaguely undefined risk that you're worried about but it's unclear how bad it will get or whether it'll ever be realised. Now, I yeah. think for things that uh, that I think the decision is much clearer are things like telecommunications, where it's really a fundamental sort of system of data transfer. And if that's compromised or disrupted, you're really in a world of hurt. And so you, you can't accept that risk for any reason. Mm. I think logistics is not that bad <laughs> it's it's yeah. not that good and i guess if you're starting from that position you really at the position that they're in with a logistics hub already there you've just got to see what you can do about minimizing the risk going forward now uh the last thing we're going to look at today is um just the kickoff in hacktivism and disinformation uh as a result of the just staggeringly depressing uh conflict uh, you know, the terrorist attacks in Israel by Hamas. And uh, now, you know, we've got a campaign targeting Gaza um, as a result of all of this, targeting Hamas in Gaza. And, uh, you know, it's just d horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Um, but, you know, we are seeing an outbreak of, of hacktivist activity, which is to be expected. Um, but, I mean, you know, you make the point in your analysis here that, yeah, and this comes actually like a week after Amnesty put out, it's, it's like laws uh, for red cross oh red cross i'm and sorry it, yeah, it, it was, was the red cross two lawyers who work for the red cross not necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. the red cross itself okay okay so two <laughs> lawyers who work for the red cross put out their published their rules for hacktivism right to keep them uh you know rules for uh civilians who wanted to do um uh hacktivism and how they can do that in a way that's sort of compliant with international humanitarian law and whatnot like don't go around attacking hospitals that sort of thing yeah um but yeah now we've seen this um you know this, this horrible series of events in the Middle East, it's kicking off. But, you know, you make the point in this that so far hacktivism in around armed conflicts hasn't amounted, I think I've used your words here, you know, they, they haven't amounted to a hill of beans. So <laughs> we had a long discussion about whether it was a hill of beans or not. And I actually took it out of the piece. And the reason I did is that the... Um, there are attacks that make things worse. So the example at the top of the piece is disrupting a system that warns civilians about missile attacks. Yeah. And so it's it's what I meant is that in the context of a war, hacktivist actions haven't changed 
the outcome of a war. They haven't been significant. Okay, I get it. So yeah. you took that line out. And I guess that's, I didn't see that edit, obviously, yeah. which is why I'm talking about it. But I guess the reason you took that out is because you don't want to trivialize hacktivists abusing API access into an Israeli rocket warning system to spam people with erroneous notifications. I'm guessing you don't want to trivialize that sort of action. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that could result in more people getting killed. That doesn't seem yeah, yeah. insignificant, right. right? And so that's uh, the kind of thought process there. It There's been nothing on its own that has caused a huge amount of civilian suffering, I guess, is yeah. is what I was trying to say. Or has changed military outcomes either. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the I, I guess there's a number of reasons to be sceptical about efforts to encourage rule-following behavior in people who are, well, I mean, essentially they're breaking the rules in the first place by hacking. Um and so it seems... But if you're going to break the law, you need to do it in a legally responsible way. <laughs> I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah, like right. that's a strange starting point. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, now, it's a strange starting point and it's very easy be, to be cynical, first of all, because those actions, like I, I kind of said, haven't hugely changed the outcome of war. But I think it's still worth doing... Um, and it's kind of like why diplomacy around cyber espionage is worth doing, because the only way you'll encourage people to not do bad things is to talk to them about doing those bad things and make them see that maybe there's a better way to do it. Now, this yeah. will not work for the majority of people, perhaps the vast majority, but I think it's still worth doing because talk is... <laughs> talk is relatively cheap it's yeah it's easier in some ways than actually stopping people um and right now at least the people who could do the most damage are also i think the people who are the most sophisticated um often associated with states and are perhaps the most easy to convince that there's a right way to do things um i guess i should step back and explain that They've got a, a list of different rules. And basically, they all try and reinforce the principles of international humanitarian law. And that's just, you know, at a very high level, it's just try and avoid hurting civilians as much as you can. It yeah. doesn't say you shouldn't hurt them, but just avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. And don't incite violations of international human, uh, humanitarian law, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a, there's a bunch of stuff and it all seems like sensible advice. Um, but, you know, your piece points out that 58 groups, hacktivist groups, have now announced involvement, uh, you know, in these hostilities, 48 pro-Palestine groups and 10 pro-Israel groups. And, you know, I mean, I in the context of what's happening right now, no one is going to adhere to these rules. Like everyone's blood is up. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's just really interesting that these rules got released right before this whole thing kicked off. And it just, yeah, I don't know, man, I'm a, I'm a little bit jaded today. And I think, I think that's a lot of people at the moment. I think just what we've seen is, is yeah, it's not a, it's not a great week to ask me for my views on humanity and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's willingness to adhere to basic principles, you know? Yeah. I, I think if you step back, uh, People break IHL all the time. Atrocities are yeah. committed all the time around the world. I don't think that means we shouldn't talk about 
IHL and try and make it a principle that people adhere to. Um, I think it's still worth the effort. And, um, you know, cyberspace is a bit different for various reasons, but I think it's still worth the effort is what it boils down to. I mean, what what else are you going to do? Just give up and go, atrocities happen? Um, Okay. No, I think you should say atrocity happens and we want fewer of them. We're never going to stop them. We just want to minimise them as much as we can. Yeah, well, we need more thinking like that in the world. Uh, Tom Uren, thank you so much for uh, joining me to have this discussion. Great to chat to you as always. Thanks, Pat.